Hey everybody, welcome back to another Photog Adventures podcast. I'm Aaron King. I'm Brendan Porter. With families and day jobs, we know it's hard to find time to get out there with your camera. So Brendan and I joined together and made the commitment to go out consistently and build up our landscape and astrophotography portfolios. We live in Utah and are lucky to have so many beautiful landscapes all around us. Not only do we have five national parks right here in Utah, but we are only a day or less drive away from 30 other national parks. So we created PhotogAdventures.com, this podcast, and our YouTube channel to chronicle our adventures. Come along with us to amazing places and learn from our mistakes and our successes. We hope that you will get out there too and have a photog adventure of your own. It's episode 79 and on the podcast today I am joined by Jeff Peterson. There is no Brendan Porter on this podcast because he was not out there with us at the White Pockets. Hey Jeff. Hey, how's it going today? It's going really well. I'm excited to talk about White Pockets. We've taken about, what, two weeks now before we could talk about it. So it all feels really fresh in my mind, but it also I'm really excited to talk about it. And I'm finally getting a chance to tell the stories from White Pockets because, let's just spoiler alert, I loved it. Well, I could tell that by some the last couple of podcasts. It was just <laughs> killing you not to be able to talk about it. So, uh, right. yeah, I just I actually just got back from there uh, last night. So, uh I oh, that's just right. went out again, and uh, just I'm fresh back from there again, so it's uh, it's a wonderful place. So just barely you're in White Pockets, so you're going to have new stories from that as well, from our trip. Sweet. What we're going to want to talk about with the White Pockets, Jeff, as you're joining me here, we'll talk about getting out there, how crazy it is, the first impressions of being in that awesome place for me, because they were my first impressions, camping there. Then in segment two, we'll talk about the location and where you, how your photography goes and working out a composition, how your shot turned out. I also want to hear, Jeff, the story of your best shot that you've ever taken there, why it was your best shot which shot it was, and what turned out so well. And then, guys, in segment three, we'll do tip of the week and gear time based on white pocket stuff, and we'll call it. So let's get started in the podcast with one announcement. I don't know. Do I have an announcement? Thinking, thinking, thinking. I don't think we have any new announcements this podcast. Don't you, don't you have another uh, workshop coming up here uh, pretty soon? Ooh, you're right. I shouldn't forget and neglect to say that. So let's talk about the Crater Lake pot, the Crater Lake workshop. The Milky Way workshop in Escalante went fantastic. If you heard last week's podcast, you heard that people were loving it, and the skies are really, really, really awesome. We can't always guarantee the skies, but the locations we can, and dang, those locations are cool. They're really fun to light paint. The experience over at Crater Lake workshop is a little bit different. We have one location abandoned that we will do light painting, low-level lighting over there on the sea stacks out there in the ocean. Wait until later in the evening, in the morning when the Milky Way is out more southern southern and western, where you can see it out over the beach and not towards the light pollution. Then the other two days, we're going to be at Crater Lake at a beautifully, amazingly dark sky. We're up so high elevation that the sky gets crisper and crisper. If we have zero clouds, we potentially are going to have the best sky you've ever seen unless you've been out in crazy places in Utah like Brennan and I have. So if you guys like the idea of doing Milky Way photography out in Oregon or you live close in the area, consider checking out our workshop. Go to photogadventures.com forward slash adventures. You'll see the Crater Lake Bandon one. Check that out. Our next one's in the tw- in 25 days. And then we also are going to put out a two-night one in Oregon. We're going to do more beach photography. I asked Jeff, a bunch of our wait list people, what are they looking for? What would they like to do the most of? And they really like the idea of doing Bandon and going out on that beach. And so a lot of people like the idea of two-night workshops out there. So we'll be going out to Oregon again, I think, in July or August. So by the end of the podcast, I'll talk about that. But if you're curious and interested in Crater Lake, please go check it out. So... Let's talk about White Pockets. 
people are starting to become more and more familiar with it, Jeff, but you're, you're an old hat at photography. How long have you known about the White Pockets area? Uh, I think I went out there the very first time about 20 years ago. Wow, 20 um, years I actually ago. went out. I went out there on an ATV with some friends, and we went out there goofing around, and they, they were talking about this place, White Pockets, and I'd never heard of it before. So we went out there, and it was a pretty crazy ATV ride back in those days. And uh, I bet was it not worse? like it is today. Was it worse? Oh yeah, then? it was a, the the what is now a road. It was just just a little ATV track. Oh, um, not not even the same. <laughs> so yeah, it was a it was an exciting ride, but it was a fun ride out there. Um, a lot of ranchers knew about it for years, but people just didn't know. You know, photographers, it took a while. You know, I think the wave became popular first and then White Pockets. So it's actually, it's kind of strange because most people get there by uh, going from Kanab, Utah, and then driving from Utah into Arizona. And then you actually make a big U coming back up to the White Pockets out there. So, so the actual White crazy Pockets road. are technically in Utah. <clears throat> They're on the Utah side of the border. No, they're just inside of Arizona. Okay. But you, if you make a phone call out there, which they now have cell service, you actually get a cell tower in uh, Utah. That's why the time zone was weird for us. Remember that? We were probably oh, yeah. getting a momentary uh, Arizona signal. We'll have to talk about that in our camping segment. But you went out there for the first time without a camera, or did you happen to have one on you? No, I didn't have a camera at all. And I really didn't think about it as a, a photography location at that time because it was just kind of like, yeah, it was kind of a fun place to go and play. And, you know, later on, of course, I figured out, hey, you know what? There might be some good pictures out there. So eventually I started going out there and um, taking pictures. And it's just become one of my favorite places to get away from everything and go out and take some pictures. And it changes so much every time of the year out there that you go. It just... It's an amazing place. Right. I mean, it's talk about a place that's out in the middle of nowhere. This location, when you look at my tracks app, I have the My Tracks app, you guys have heard me talk about a lot, and I come off of US 89, and the drive we do is the down, over, and up. And so you almost make a complete U shape just to get there. And if only there was something more direct, but I don't know. I kind of appreciate that it's not that easy, but I also hate how difficult it is. It really is out in the middle of nowhere. Oy, oy, oy. But this, looking at the map, if you look at it from the satellite, guys, and everything around there has the normal, typical Colorado Plateau kind of cool swell that's neat. And then there's just red sand and bushes until it just opens up to this white sandstone and glorious-looking crap that is just... It's surprising that it sticks out here but nowhere else. Uh, you were talking about it, Jeff, how it seemed like maybe a lot of this area probably has the same structures and formations, but they're just buried in sands, like deep 10, 12 feet of sand. Oh, yeah, you can see out there as you're driving around, you can see little pieces of the sandstone and stuff popping up. So you know there's got to be more of it out there. It's just there's so much sand that's burying it all. So someday it's going to change, and we'll have a, a different area. But for me, I think it's better than the wave. Really um, better than the wave? you got to say why. Well, it's a much bigger area. The wave's only a couple of acres in size. It's relatively small. Um, White Pockets is huge 
comparatively. So there's, oh, probably 20 times more compositions that you can shoot at White Pockets <laughs> or even more, maybe hundreds. And um, it's just, there's a lot more diversity there for you to, to shoot. So I think it's a, I think it from a photography standpoint, it's probably one of the best areas in this area to go and shoot. Oh man, that's a tragedy to say because I mean, I agree, but I also agree this is the one location that I've gone to that I'm actually going to protect the location of. Not because I think the White Pockets area is going to be destroyed necessarily, as of course sandstone will, but more footprints and more people walking on it as the wave experience, they're smoothing out areas. But the just the mere difficulty of getting there and the sheer challenge of getting the right vehicle down that pathway, uh, I don't want to recommend this location to anyone because I only want those most serious people who are going to take all the care and research and get there with the right vehicle to ever go. I just don't want this to sound like something, hey, you showed up in Phoenix, you went to the Grand Canyon, fit in the white pockets. No, that should not be something you fit into another adventure or another trip. Oh, definitely not. Definitely not. You know, the problem is, is that if it becomes too popular, number one thing that's going to happen is the BLM is going to shut it down. The more important thing is, is the road is because it's sand for a great part of the road going out there. Every time people drive across it, the road is getting more torn up and more torn up. And it's easier and easier to get stuck out there. It's just, it's not something we, you know, if you've never driven in deep, deep sand, don't try it. Don't do, don't make this your first attempt. (laughs) No, it's not the place to learn. Um, the tow bill to get out of there is anywhere from a thousand to two thousand dollars if you should get stuck. <laughs> well, uh, you experienced, you've had gone through there, what, for your workshops? You've probably been out there 10 times in the last year or less. Would you say four or five? Uh, in the last six months, probably 10. So, even in six months, you've gone 10. And then, yep. how many times have you come across someone who is stuck? Probably half of those. Half half of the times you've driven out there, you've had someone stuck on your path? Yep. The, this last this last weekend, we were driving out. A gentleman in a rental car, a Toyota RAV4, which is a four-wheel drive vehicle, but he was not only stuck, but he was good and stuck. He was all the way to the, to the bottom of the undercarriage of the vehicle. I mean, he stuck it good. High centered on the middle sand then? Um, He actually hit, there was a soft hole. And I don't know what he did because English was not his primary language. So I was having a hard time talking with him. But he, it looked like from looking at his vehicle that he tried to go back and forwards and then just kind of worked his way down into the sand. Oh, so he was trying to get himself out of the initial stuck and buried himself more and more and more. Made it made it really bad. Oh, so when, so you, when you came across him, you talked to me and you said that sometimes you towed people out of there. Did you tow him out in order to keep going or could you get around him? No, I was able to, there was a little bit of a path around him that we were able to go around him. He was unfortunately where he got stuck, the sand was so deep that if I had tried to pull him out, I would have ended up getting stuck also. Oh, so he he had to wait for somebody with a vehicle with a long winch 
that could be farther away from him in the sand to a little bit firmer area, and then then they could get him out. What have you done in the past? If half the time you've gone down this corridor, this one-way road, and had someone stuck, how did you deal with those? Um, sometimes if they weren't, I mean, if you know, if they just kind of spun their wheels and got themselves kind of high-centered, I'll pull my uh, my mat trucks out and I throw them underneath the wheels, and we can usually get them unstuck pretty easy. But I mean, this guy was going to take, you know, an hour of digging in the sand, which. I really didn't want to do so. <laughs> no, and you have a <laughs> and workshop. He w- yeah, and I've got all my people in the workshop that I had to, I had to get out there safely. So I told them I'd call for help. And so when I got out to White Pockets, there's an, uh, there's a spot there as you remember that we could get cell service. So I went yeah. out there and called for help for him, and the sheriffs came out and uh, took care of him. Oh, good. So the sheriffs. <clears throat> do you have any idea what kind of fine or bill that ends up being for someone who gets stuck? Um, because I ran into the sheriff later, um, he said it was uh, $1,500. 1500 I thought it was going to be high, anything over 200 and it's actually $1,500? The guy, when, when you call to get him to come out to tow you out, he requires a credit card. <laughs> he, he, won't even, he won't even leave Canab without your credit card number so he can charge you before oh, he comes out. Oh, man. And he leaves from Kanab, too. I mean, when we hit the dirt road off of US-89 that comes off of Kanab, and then we turned down towards white, uh, towards the wave and then continued on down, I mean, that was a 36-mile drive that took us an hour and 26 minutes, just that section. So that guy yeah. from Kanab, what is that, two and a half hours? Or you think it's two yep. only? It's about two and a half hours for him to get out there. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I guess I've had worse... Uh, tow truck arrivals than two and a half hours but dang what a terrible place to have to get a tow and fifteen hundred dollars later that made that guy's trip to utah a little more expensive or no arizona well and the problem is is it the rental agreements specifically say if you take your vehicle off road you void the uh the insurance that's right the they say you can't go off road you can go on some graded dirt roads like Escalante, but you can't go off of any of the roads off Escalante that are more right. four by four only. And man, going to the white pockets of the rental, this guy's nuts. Oh yeah, I, and it. So there's actually a picture in the Escalante in the visitor center there in Canab, and somebody tried to drive a motorhome out there. Wait, on this road for the White Pocket Road? Well, on one of the... There's three roads to get in there, and they tried the one coming from Paw Hole. And they have pictures (laughs) of it in the office, and yeah, that was... I think they said that was $2,500 for him to get towed out. Oh, man. Was it one of those Cruise America trailers where they have the big old box? Oh, my gosh. yeah. What was he thinking? (laughs) They weren't. (laughs) So, you guys, you were thinking about going to the White Pockets. I hope you guys are adequately intimidated by the road. Now, what's wrong with the road? I'm going to describe it a little bit, Jeff, and then you give me a better description afterwards. From my view of driving through it once with Jeff there and once back, it's just a section of road that's mostly sand where everyone's tires have dug out trenches and the middle part where Jeff called it the pumpkin on your axle, that middle part, that round part right there was just scraping the middle sand. And so the the pyramid peak of sand that happens in between your tires 
just get scraped out by the pumpkin and you have this like belly of a snake that has slithered through there. And it's just very deep sand. There's sections and long sections and stretches where it's only so sm- it's only sand. So there's a place where you have to commit to. You can't stop. You can't slow down. Your momentum carries you through it. And on top of that, the terrain is mostly level but bouncy. It's not like it's flat. And so you're hitting your head on the roof of your car sometimes and you're trying to keep yourself from getting stuck so you're going through it fast and it's just you need to have something with um, good clearance and good tires in a situation where you can take some bumps yeah that's that's a good good way to describe it so what happens is is because it's it's a it's not like a beach type sand it's uh what we call blow sand so it's got a lot of it's it's a lot finer because it's been blowing in the wind it's not like a sand dune Oh, so okay. what happens is, is when you drive across it, every time somebody drives over it, the weight of the vehicles going across it kind of pushes a little bit of the sand out. So as the season goes on, that those those wheel ruts get deeper and deeper and deeper until the cars start driving and start dragging their axles. And then that'll push some of the sand back out. But it gets softer and softer, and it'll get to the point where you can be sitting there and your tires cannot get any traction because it's like they're floating through this. It's like they're in water almost. So it it can be a big problem at times. At certain times of the year, we get some really good wind, which will flatten them out, and then rain will help. Rain will help wash the sand back down into the ruts and kind of pack it down. And it'll be good for a month or so, but there's anywhere from seven to 20 cars a day driving over that road right now from all the outfitters. And so all that traffic is causing a lot of damage to the road. Oh man, we saw three or four outfitter vehicles come by us on our one hour drive through there on the way out. So you're saying those guys are probably coming in four or five times a day each, or do they do their trip once or twice? The one outfitter company sends seven vehicles a day out there. Seven vehicles there and then out, there and then out. Yep. So they're seriously continually dropping those ruts deeper and deeper just by right. them going out there. And they have a high-clearance vehicle, so it's not a big issue for them. They can get in and out of there. Um, the average the average Jeep or, or that, if you know, a stock Jeep's not going to make it out there easily. It can be done if you know what you're doing, but... You have to be careful. If you were to go there for your very first time, never seen it, don't know, haven't gone with someone else who knows, and you wanted to make sure you had the best vehicle possible and you're going to be the best, you know, the the best you could be to treat the conditions of the trail the best, what would you recommend they even begin to try and nothing else lower than this standard? I would not go out there with a vehicle with tires smaller than 33 inches tall. So higher than 33 inches, taller than 33 inches tires, and then does it matter what vehicle as long as it's just 4x4? Four four? A good four-wheel drive. Um, I, drive my, I drive my pickup out there, but it's got plenty of power, and I've been driving in the sand for a long time. Okay. Um, Jeeps are really a great vehicle to use. Um, some of the Toyota pickups have, I, do really well out there. Um, if you're going to drive a, a lighter vehicle, you have some advantage. If you can lower the air pressure down and make your tires wider by lowering them, that helps a lot. 
but it's not a it's not a good place to go for your first attempt at driving in deep sand. I would recommend going with an outfitter to kind of get an idea what the road's like before you try it. Okay. And is there an outfitter you recommend, one that's not as D-baggy? <laughs> nah, we all, everybody charges about the same price. So if you're going to go out there, just, you know, search around. Somebody might have a deal. Um, and it's, you know, it's a safe way to get out there. Okay. They've got the resources in that, and they can get you out there safely. And it's, a, you know, and then you can enjoy the ride out, honestly. It's true. I mean, unlike some places I've been, guys, the ride there is not a visual fair, a carnival. You don't see the white pocket area until you get there. Even one point I started seeing some different colored rocks. I'm like, there it is. He goes, no, those are just near white pocket. And he goes, I think I can see a little bit of the top. A little bit of the top of what? I'm looking and I can't see or recognize what it is on the horizon that Jeff is seeing. So it's not something that... In the passenger seat, you can see white pockets as you're driving there and enjoy the view. That's not what you're going to see. But you are going to see beautiful desert in northern Arizona, and it's a beautiful place to go. And it's a lot easier being the guy in the passenger seat and not worried about how well you're driving through this craziness. Yeah, and and the other thing is is that you don't actually see it until you walk out into it. Even when you're sitting in the parking lot, you really don't see no, the formation, right. the cool formations. You can see like the tips of the little, the little hills, but you don't see it until you walk right out into it. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about that after we talk about the camping situation. So imagine you guys have all done it correctly and you brought a correct vehicle. You didn't get stuck. You didn't get anyone else's way in or out of there, and you were. You're on a conscientious way of getting through there. You paid attention to Jeff's rules, and you got there. You've arrived at White Pockets. Is there a big visitor center and parking lot, Jeff? How does the sleeping arrangements go? You know, now there's no visitor center. <laughs> there's no bathroom. No bathroom. No pit toilet. There's nothing. No, there's no pit toilet. Nothing, because there's no way for them to get a truck out there to clean out the pit toilet. So there's a dirt parking lot. That's kind of sandy um, in spots, but for the most part is pretty good parking. And there's a rail fence there and a little opening in that, and that's the entrance. And that's about as much as you get out there. So what's, you got to pretty much bring everything with you. <laughs> yeah. What's with the rail fence? Why do they even have that? Uh, people used to drive out onto the white pockets. Oh. They used to drive out on those formations You're before kidding. they put those up. Okay, nope. I'm glad they put those up because that would be ridiculous yeah. driving on the formations. ATVs used to go out there and and so they w- wanted to preserve it because it was getting so popular. Yeah. And they um they decided that that was one way to do it. Well, I'm glad they're doing that to preserve it. Like Jeff said, you got to bring everything. We saw someone with a really cool trailer. What was the name of that trailer that you were talking to him about? Had everything with them, their cooking arrangements, even a bathroom. And it's one of those teardrop-like trailers that he pulled behind. So you can even get out there and pull a trailer behind you. Another person was camping with multiple tents, and then they had a you know, a porta potty tent that was set up. And Brett, Jeff and I, we just used... Um, good old nature bushes and the facilities of a tent from Walmart. Very nice tent, but Jeff knows how to upgrade a tent. <laughs> I got to talk about this right here. So Jeff knows how to take a tent from Walmart and make you feel like you're living like a king because he pulls out the tent and then he has a perfectly matched 
floor of carpet that he has cut for the tent. And so then he places that inside the tent all throughout the floor. Not only are you feeling like, okay, now I've got a nice structure. This is going to stay here and not blow away. But you've also got a nice safe structure to put your cots on. You know those cot legs? You can unfold them, and then they could tear through your tent fabric. Well, these weren't because he had that carpet, that carpet. I mean, how many times did you take that tent out, Jeff, without the carpet before you decided, I need to get some carpet for this thing? Or is that just your deal? I did it. I think I took that one out one time. Only once before me, or that was the one time? No, the first time I ever used it, I used it without the carpet. But there's nothing worse than getting up in the morning and go to put your shoes on. And you get sand all over your feet because you track it all over the inside. So at least the carpet kind of helps with that and keeps you from getting your, you know, it's kind of nice to walk on and oh, stay on a plasticky floor. And It's very nice. I loved it. And, it. and it's also a little bit of insulation from the ground. Oh, good point. So if I were to sleep on that directly, it would feel a lot better than just the cold ground. That's a good point. I know that now I'm stuck needing to buy that carpet every time I get a tent because that's going to be glorious. This little Ozark Trail tent could fit, I think you said, eight people, but realistically it's like four adult men could fit in there tight. And we had space for two cots and just comfortable living out there at White Pocket. And there's no water, obviously, and nothing else. And so if you guys are going, get ready to camp or do a couple hours and then drive out of there. But there's nothing close. It's an hour and a half drive in to this point from the paved road. So you're not going to just quickly drive out and grab something you forgot, not without a lot of frustration. Yeah, you have to be you have to be really experienced when you're doing this. It's just it's not something you try to do your first time camping either. So yeah, you gotta bring in your food. And actually when we were out there, we actually did have a porta potty if we needed it. Oh, okay. But um yeah, I carry a porta potty normally with a um little shower tent to put it in so you can have a little privacy so all the other tourists don't sit there and watch you using the toilet <laughs> how's it going guys <laughs> yeah don't want to put on a show for them so <laughs> oh there's no show i'm just over yeah. here reading my ipad <laughs> <laughs> nothing to see here <laughs> well let's go ahead and right there with camping and everything and take our first break of the podcast and we'll come back and talk about our first impressions of the location talk about the photography in that area how our photography went and talk about some specific images that we captured out there then we'll go on to the rest of the podcast so we'll take our first break Hey guys, if you're thinking about joining us for a Milky Way workshop and you're wondering, how the heck do I do this? Well, first off, you can always just Google Photog Adventures and go down to the Crater Lake one, Crater Lake Abandoned. That one is in 20, whoa, it's 21 days now. So 21 days, three weeks away. Last minute, come join us. And if you can only join us for some of it, maybe you can only be there for the Crater Lake part, let me know. Let's work out a special price for you so that you can come out to Crater Lake with us, even if you can't come to Abandoned or vice versa. Let me know to send me an email at photogadventures at gmail.com but this Crater Lake Abandoned Workshop is going to be a blast. It is 1,190 for the whole workshop. This one does not include any transportation and it does not include any hotels. Hotels are crazy expensive this time so we're all camping and you can choose to do what you would like to do but come and join us at Crater Lake. It's in 21 days or you can look at the other dates that are coming up in the next couple months. Thanks guys. Welcome back to the Photog Adventures Podcast. I'm here with Jeff Peterson as my co-host today. Brendan was having surgery, and he couldn't join us out at White Pockets. And so 
our loss that Brendan's not here, but your gain that you have Jeff Peterson for more of this podcast. Everyone loved your last podcast, Jeff. And so it's awesome to have you back on here. Oh, thanks. It, it, you know, it's, it's fun. And I, I can't say how much fun I have with you guys. It's, I, I always come home <laughs> and I laugh for a week afterwards about all the crazy things that we do. So I, it's so much fun and I so much enjoy and I appreciate you guys having me on the podcast. And Oh, of course. <laughs> we have always bragged about our adventures with you. And I think we spent the entire Escalante workshop talking about Jeff Peterson. So then Kant wanted to come back with us and meet Jeff Peterson on our way out. And we were sad to find out that you were leaving to go to White Pockets and we couldn't come by and see you on our way out of there. Yeah, I know. I was I probably about the time you guys were getting to bed, I was on my way to White Pockets to pick up the uh, the clients and head out there with them for the weekend. Where do you guys tend to pick up your clients for White Pockets? We'll pick them up in St. George and Kanab, depending upon their plans. I so see. it just kind of depends on that. That works out nice because it's not the kind of workshop where you say, we'll meet you there. Not possible. You're driving them to the location. Yes. It's, <laughs> it's a requirement, actually, of our permit that we have to provide the transportation out there. Oh, they want to can... limit the number of vehicles. Yeah, that completely makes sense. So, guys, if you're not driving, working out, doing dishes or something right now, go to Google Maps and just type in White Pocket. White Pocket, Arizona, and you'll see what I'm looking at. It looks like an ancient dinosaur, a giant dinosaur, has fallen over, has passed away, his skin is petrified, and now it's being uncovered over the years by the rock. I mean, there is this crazy, crazy white, like bubbly brain-looking skin reptilian texture rocks from the, from the satellite view, and in person they look freaking amazing. And then you have these sinewy lines and curves that make what is inside like an oyster shell or a clam and it's just this amazing red rock that mixes with orange and mixes with white i believe there's even some yellows i can't remember you were just there there's a lot of yellow in the rock too right oh yeah there's yellow in there um and there's there is some areas with some uh a little bit of purple in the rock too oh a little purplish oh my gosh this place okay my first impression I'm walking in with Jeff, and we're just on a regular trail that turns into a sandy trail that makes you hate all the extra lenses you had in your backpack because you're thinking, oh, this is freaking heavy. And I'm trudging through six inches, eight inches of sand, and why did I bring that lens? I'm not going to need it. Why do I have so much crap in my bag? This is a very, very short walk, not a hike, walk from the parking lot, guys, and you still regret your weight decision. So choose well when you go out here. But, oh, my uh, the rat, the rat in Charlotte's web that's running around saying everything's a smorgasbord, smorgasbord, all the food and the fare, all the leftovers. This is that place for a photographer. Everywhere you look, there's another really cool object, a really cool subject for a composition, or maybe you get this with the leading lines here, and oh my gosh, look at that. That is really cool looking. I want to take a macro shot of that. Everything is overwhelming how beautiful, interesting, full of character the rock is, and I've been to really cool rock locations, and they're all really, really, really neat, but I really had expectations that I was going to see white pockets and think it's another set of rocks that look pretty interesting that's nice no it's unique i would think it's i would say it's unique i think it's probably one of the most unique rock formations in utah wow that's saying uh, something right there well or yeah i mean this the whole southwest i don't think i've ever seen anything that can compare to this even the wave doesn't have all the the variety that that, that white pockets has 
you know, I think of it as, you know, somebody built a, a 20 layer cake oh, and then yeah. smashed it. And then you're looking at all the broken pieces. <laughs> oh, that's so, awesome. But it's funny you say, you talk about the dinosaurs because there's actually dinosaur tracks there. At this location, wait, that's right. You you, you yeah. said you should have pointed them out, but we'll see them the next day. And then it got too windy for us to go out. How yeah, far in? So, right there, right by your. Oh, we were probably within fifty feet of the one. Oh, what kind? They're of... all over, and when you're walking around, you just have to kind of pay attention. And all of a sudden, you'll see the you'll see the little footprint, or you know, you'll see a part. You know, you'll look at it and go, "That's kind of not." part of what's normal here and and you figure out there's a couple of them in a row and it's like oh that's where the dinosaur walked so i wish i was a geology major or something because i'm trying to figure out what that means if a dinosaur can imprint this rock it was at one point soft enough to be stepped into but stayed that way enough and never you know reformed over or reshaped by anything else to to still show that petrified footprint or was there a foot in there the the tracks look like something's walked through and on or was it a foot that was there and has since um just demolished and been uh what's the word i'm looking for it all expired it all how do you say that fossilized (laughs) fossilized no these are not fossils they're actually just tracks it's as if you walked across some mud and it dried and 10,000 100,000 years from now somebody comes along and digs it up and they go well, that's an Aaron King footprint there. <laughs> it looks and like people go, not the famous Aaron King. <laughs> no, no, the other one, the photographer. Oh, him. Yeah. <laughs> someday, someday when you Google Aaron King, you won't find a rapist on charges or um, porn mm-hmm. person. There's like three Aaron Kings out there. Google image search, and you'll see their mug shots, and you'll see they're arrested on rape charges. So yeah, Aaron King. I've got to do something more to fix the Google search for Aaron King. <laughs> <laughs> but in this area uh, in photography, it's overwhelming for compositions and completely amazing. Uh, okay, um, when I got there, Jeff, I kept my lens cap on. I kept everything there so that I wouldn't get stuck in one idea. I wanted to walk around everything. We met your friend. She showed me that that wavy area right there that was really cool. I captured some you know, iPhone shots of some neat features. But I wasn't sure because I had a sunset that night that I thought might be tremendous. And so I was really wanting to be choosy, but I, I was overwhelmed. I had composition paralysis on what could be the best. And I hadn't been there. I didn't know where the light was going to be. What rocks out there on the west were going to block and, sh- and shade my cool subject? What was going to have the great light hitting it? How does someone, or maybe any advice that you have, Jeff, for someone who might go out here and find a good composition without any knowledge, prior knowledge of a location? How would someone find it? Well, one of the things I think that would help a lot is photopills. And you can see where the light's going to be coming from relative to the to where you're at on the rock. That's true. So it's really important because some areas out there at certain times of the year will get shade. And other times of the year, they're going to get nice nice light hitting them. So you have to really be aware of where that light's going to be coming from at sunrise and sunset to help you find that perfect location. Yeah. Um, but watching you, when you first saw it out there, it was <laughs> great entertainment because <laughs> the look on your face was, you you could tell you're, 
you were just overloaded with what you were seeing. <laughs> and that's that's really common. You know, people can get people go out there and they'll spend three hours out there and they just they lose track of time oh, because easy. it's so overwhelming and they just they get so excited that the next thing you know it's sunset and they haven't figured out what they're gonna shoot. So you gotta pick something and just go with it and it's one of those places that if the more you go back to it, the more you find. Yeah. I'm always finding something new. I imagine that I really am going to have to make multiple trips to come out here to get good at it. But how do I recommend that as a as a step in a place like this where, you know, I don't want to recommend everyone to go here because I want to make sure only the most serious and the most prepared get out here. And so it's a tough thing to say, but it is. It's an it's an intimidating location to get a good shot your first try. Almost impossible. Oh yeah. Well, go with somebody that who's been there before. That would be my uh, my tip. Go there with somebody who's been there before, who can say, "Oh yeah, the light's going to come in here, and this is what's going to happen," and that's gonna that's gonna eliminate a lot of the the stress of trying to find the right location. Because you can say, "No, the, this time of year that the light's not going to hit that right, and you're going to have a big shadow there." So. If you can find somebody who's been out there, and I would recommend going out there in a group anyway of a couple of people just for safety's sake um, because right. you are so far away from everything. You, it's not a place you want to go out by yourself. That's a good That's a good piece of advice always, and in this place especially. And especially out in this area where it's really diverse and variable with the rock, you could go over a hump and be lost to the world forever. We would never find you. I mean, you could eventually be found, but there's easy places that if you were to be, be laid down with a sprained ankle or broken foot, you might not get seen unless you're able to be heard. And so definitely go with someone else. Um, this area, how big would you say it is? You say it's bigger than the wave, but it also, when you get out there, you can walk through most of the area before the sunset. With given a couple hours, you can walk through all of it, right? Well, you can you can cover a good portion of it. You okay. can't really truly see everything um, real fast. Okay. So, what do you think? Three hours? You said people will lose time, but if you were if you were studious and very quick, could you get through it in three hours and see most stuff? Or is this a big enough place that half a day is what you want to spend? I would say three hours will give you a pretty good idea. The problem is, is in three hours, you're going to see 80 compositions. <laughs> so now you got to figure out which one you're going to, which one you're going to do. Which one's number one? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So and then you got to go back and find it. <laughs> People have done landscape photography, have in their mind kind of how they lay out their compositions, what their foreground element is, the really, really close foreground element, where they focus stack, whether they do this or that or panorama. What would you say some of the landscape photography techniques and compositional methods that you should use in white pockets? Throw them all out the window because the place is crazy. And... <laughs> now... Um... There's there's great leading lines there, mm, and I would yeah. say really capitalize on those leading lines and look for a leading line that leads you into something even more interesting so you kind of build the layers looking into the scene. And don't worry so much about the sky. If you don't get a great sky, you can still take some great pictures in there and not even include the sky and still walk away with a beautiful image. The area that I experienced the most confusion was right at the beginning as I looked at this rock. And this rock is sort of tilted 
up in front of you, you kind of walk up it, and everything you see, you think, okay, sunrise, sunrise. Sunrise from the east, this will look better. It'll hit this. It'll be in shade for sunset. So I tried to get up and over the hump areas to try and find something that would be in light in the sunset. Immediately, you see the brain rock above you, and it looks really cool with these candy stripes going up the brain rock, but you know that that for sunset... That's the shadow side. That's the shadow side. So we went and off to the right of this first area and walked down to what ends up being a pretty big, big area of sandstone that you can walk in there, like a, like a skate park of sandstone around here, and just wandering and wandering around trying to find cool stuff. And finally, I came around this little pool of water. I tried some reflection shots in there for fun to see if it's all nice and then I continued on to where it became a ledge and hits the sand and the actual desert and just off to my left is a really cool clamshell curvature that's going up from me and if anyone's done a, a, a waterfall or a river that's going downhill the best river shot of a river going downhill is at the base of the river looking up it so you can see it have these tiers of detail and tiers of character instead of being at the top where everything pulls away from the camera and you're end up like you know blocking most of the interesting subjects so this was really cool that it was going up in front of me and it had all these shapes and also was open to the sunlight. We were already in golden hour at this point, and I could see how the light was hitting it, and I knew I really liked what it was doing. And you mentioned the leading lines, Jeff. I had these curves that were all kind of coming together. Like imagine someone had done a fan of cards and how all the lines that are wide at the top and then narrow and all intersect, you know, intersect at the bottom of the hand of cards that you flayed out in your hands. And so these lines all came towards the camera and then splayed out in front of me. They did a little curve and then splayed out in front of what was a nice interesting subject of taller rocks that broke the plane, broke the horizon, and they were getting good sunlight. And the clouds above them, I just wanted them so badly to get color, get some more color. They were very dynamic. There was a lot. Rain was happening off and on. It was kind of going around us and not really raining on us. And so it looked like it was going to be a great sky at sunset. We had about a half an hour left. One of the things I did on my Tamron is I went all the way out to 15 because that distortion on the outer sides of the lens, that fisheye almost lens, when I tilted it straight down to that curve line, it really brought the curve lines in together with distortion. And then it also took at the distortion at the top of the lens and took my rock and stretched it out a little bit. What was sort of a stubby look when it was at the center of my lens became this stretched out more prominent, a little bit more powerful looking rock formation. And I was thinking, wow, just right there, tilting the lens just perfectly right there, really stretched out and used up the space in my composition so much better. And I was loving it. And as the sun set and I was watching, and I'm talking to the camera. In fact, I'll put one of these videos on the show notes, guys. If you go to photogadventures.com forward slash EP79, you'll be able to see the video of me talking about the camera, talking about my composition and waiting for that light to hit uh, that area jeff is just pure desert i guess because clouds go really fast overhead and by the time the half an hour came and that golden at light of just the most sunset golden light hitting it possible for the rocks um well the clouds were gone and i had a blue sky <laughs> it was very disappointing yeah. <laughs> that's that's pretty common out there believe it or not um, yeah, the, the clouds can travel really fast and 
you'll be you'll think you're going to have a great shot and the next thing you know it's like poof vanishes <laughs> so um would you consider over, doing i'm sorry to jump into that but would you consider blending it in time blend the clouds back from early golden hour to sunset hour on the rocks i think what i'm going to end up doing is just using one of those captures i had in the beginning and just use golden hour light but would you ever consider blending in this clouds from a different time period above this? Or how do your principles go about a, a composition blend? You know, I don't like to do it mainly because I'm inherently lazy when it comes to editing. <laughs> so the least amount of work I have to do, the better. Um, so, yeah, I won't, I won't blend it in. I'll try to, if, you know, if the clouds go away, I'll try to make something out of the image without the clouds. Do you cut out and more sky so, or what do you do? Yeah, I'll just leave, a, leave a, maybe a little sliver of the sky above. Mm. Um, or I may just completely remove the sky and I'll just concentrate on the, especially there, you can get away with those rocks because there's so much cool patterns and stuff in those rocks. You sit there and, I mean, you can get lost in the patterns in there. Oh, it's kind of yeah. like shooting ice. It's yeah. like my ice pictures. It's the same kind of principle. I can just sit there and get lost in all that texture and stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. That was something that I could have gone to if I didn't like my composition. I could have just captured all the really contrasty shadows and light. So I started interrupting you with what you did with your shot that night. Go ahead with that. Yeah, you know, um, I had a vision for my shot. And I've all the times I go out there, I'm always trying to get the shot and trying to get everything to fall into place. And once again, this time it didn't happen. Oh. But there's a spot there where I want to do a pano. And it has some really nice leading lines in the foreground that draw you up into some really cool formations. And it just, but it's a big area. So if I shot it with like a 16 millimeter or something, I could get it all in. But everything, all the the cool formations would be the size of an ant. All right. So I went in and I used a, I think I used a focal length of about seventy millimeters, and I did a pano, and I did two rows, so that I would get some good perspective, and I was really hoping, like you said, the clouds would light up. So about the time they started kind of getting a little bit of color, I started shooting my pano hoping that when I got to the second row of the clouds that they would be lighting up. Oh, yeah. Got to that second row of those clouds and no light. Oh. It had gone. So <laughs> it was, once again, I, I was foiled. But um, <laughs> I thought you'd have better okay. luck because you were shooting a direction where the clouds were going. The clouds that left my view went into your view, I thought. But were they there but just not lit? It just didn't get any color in them. Uh, I mean, they had a lot of cool textures, and I actually ended up making a black and white out of it, oh, and I kind of yeah. liked the shot. I really liked the shot. Um, it's not it's not that brilliant, beautiful sunset that I was hoping for, but I got some really great clouds, and I'm really happy with the shot, but I turned it into a black and white, and it, it works, and I'm happy, so it wasn't a complete waste of time no would you say it's a caliber that you'd put it in one of your shows or not an art show piece um i don't think i would go out and print it um for an art show but if somebody wanted to buy it i would sell it to them mm, gotcha i imagine so, that wouldn't somebody might might say hey i want that shot and you know they may have some attachment to it and i'll yeah 
I'm not opposed to selling somebody something. <laughs> I can't imagine that you are. <laughs> so uh, one morning I woke up, I think I was already awake, and you hit me with this image and, you know, the bitter jealousy that you like to hook me up with when you text me these things. <laughs> like, you should be here. <laughs> uh, I call that maybe your best shot in white pockets. Would you call it your best shot in white pockets? You know the sunrise I'm talking about during the yeah. workshop? Yeah, it it probably is in my top two there. Okay, top two. What would you yeah. describe as your best shot in white pockets? Yeah, I think it's a tie between that one and then actually the one I got Saturday night. This weekend? This weekend. Oh, okay, tell us. Tell us about it. What went well? So it was a spot that I had shot a bunch of times, and I as I, as we're walking, and it's in that on that side of the the mountain where we were, when you were walking in and you were thinking sunrise, right? Yeah. So, and that is that, that, that Eastern side of white pockets is t- traditionally got a lot of great light in the morning. Right. But I had found this little cactus that had a flower on it. Oh. Out. And I'm walking out there and I see these two guys that are all set up waiting for sunset. And I'm like, Oh no. So I get over there. Because I'm thinking, okay, if I go over to take this flower picture, I'm going to be in their shot, and I'm not going to do that to them. Yeah, that's fair. So I get over there, and luckily, the way they were set up on this rock kind of that juts up out of the the ground, um, they're on one side, and the cactus flower is on the direct opposite side. So I can set up over there and not be in their shot. So I set up. I try to figure out, okay, how am I going to, what lens am I going to use? I got some great clouds, a lot of drama in the clouds. There's thunderstorms. We're getting rain. It's a great evening. So I get in there. I'm still got plenty of light. It's probably 30, 40 minutes before sunset. I have to, luckily I had the really right stuff tripod with the legs that I can turn into a tent, <laughs> the, the, the L version. The giraffe so I, legs. Oh, yeah. I put those legs as far out as they would go, and then I basically was able to prop my tripod up over the cactus so that um, I could get close to the, the, the flower because there was just one flower. So I, I get that, so it's in the bottom third of my frame, and I'm able to get the top third is all this beautiful sky. And I just sit there and wait. And eventually there becomes an opening in the clouds that lines up perfectly with the little peak on this rock formation in front of me. And I had great light, took two exposures, and I was happy. Yeah. I'm looking at the picture right now, and you have this sandy triangle framing the cactus flower and plants right here, and then the same shape coming up with the rock and all of their interesting colors and shapes that then make a really cool horizon against the sky. Uh, yeah, this is fantastic. And this isn't <laughs> even lit heavily by the sunset or colored by the sunset, and it's fantastic. Yeah, and that's the thing is it didn't need it. It, it's a you know it's a beautiful little spot and I really wanted to make the flower the kind of the little icing on the cake on that one. Yeah. So you've been out to White Pockets enough. How often throughout the year do you get a cactus flower, or is it once a year? 
Once a year. It this really time of is. year is the only time. There were several wow. locations throughout the area that had cactus flowers. So it was really nice this this you know we just kind of hit it perfect that they were flowering at this moment. Yeah. So we got in there and we got some good cactus flower pictures and a couple of the people um on the workshop got some really cool pictures of them. And so I just picked this one out and I was actually I would run back over and take a picture and I'd go back over and because I had the students taking another picture and they were moving around. And so I was trying to help them and I'd have to keep running back to my camera to <laughs> keep taking a picture so I could uh, hopefully get the shot. So, cause they'd already, they'd taken the picture of the cactus flower the day before. So mm. it wasn't something that I was interfering with them. So it was just something I set up and walked away with a pretty awesome image so yeah I'm happy. not only is it a great composition but it's a great timing you just you wouldn't have been able to pick this weekend because every year at this time it blah it blooms it's just around this time depending on water right it could be a little earlier or later you don't know yeah it just depends on the temperature and the, the sunlight and so many factors to uh to get them to bloom so just it's the luck of going out there all the time and um, I get lucky sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Okay, before I end this segment, because we've already gone almost an hour, what is the last few things and piece of advice you would give anybody who smartly, incredibly smartly planned and made it safely and didn't destroy the road and got to the White Pockets? From that point on, what kind of advice would you give someone for photography out of the White Pockets? Don't have a preconceived idea of what you're going to shoot there. If you can, if you can get the time to be there, walk out in the white pockets without a camera. Just take your phone out there and wander around and look. Don't because what what inevitably happens? You go out there, and it it's the first thing you see. You take a picture of, and the next thing you know. You're chasing butterflies around white pockets. <laughs> right. So oh, yeah. come up with it. Spend a little bit of time. Come up with a plan. Just deal with the fact that you got to hike back and forth through that sand. And just go out there and, and kind of get a feel for the place before you start taking pictures. Absolutely. I had composition paralysis. I had my camera with me and I felt the intimidation of the time. If we had five hours before gotten there because... Um, Aaron King has hung out with Jeff Peterson, I think, five or six different times, and only once was I not late. And so, you were you weren't late one time. Wait a minute, <laughs> I wasn't late the one time. What, what, what was it? You didn't count that time. Why why didn't you count that time? I think I've been late every. You probably got lost. <laughs> I never get lost. It's all lies. Okay, I might get creative. Tell me otherwise. <laughs> I get creative with my method of arriving at my destination. I never get lost. I'm just a creative. <laughs> and so when I get that composition paralysis out here, and if I had more time, if I had just made it on time to Jeff's place, we could have gotten here with more time. I might have found something different that I would have shot, and I'm glad with what I found but it's just oh there are so many good things I needed more time obviously that's a, a piece of advice I can give always but 
there's the thing. This location, guys, there are really, really, really cool rocks. And your composition, unlike other places, you have a color that's in this rock that is going to be something you can decide on with your compositional balance. You might base your balance in your composition based on the color. The rocks are variable, really neat. You have leading lines. You have a sky that might just be blue. But the rock color is very intriguing, and you can plan around it. You can get there and balance and weight your shot based on color in your frame. And so be prepared in this location to think about the colors and striping of the rock and how you work with those because it is just so beautiful for what is about three football fields of rock. I mean, it is just amazing. Really cool oh, yeah. place. And if you can spend more than one day that's that second day is going to be so much easier yeah so try to spend two days if you go out there because that second day will will it'll be so much easier to shoot that second day and you'll you'll be like okay i i messed that up last night i can fix it though yes absolutely We didn't even mention the sunrise the next morning. It went okay. We didn't have a good sunrise. We didn't have clouds to speak of, but we definitely had some interesting subjects that are always there daytime, many time of the day. So really cool stuff on the sunrise part of the rocks, really cool swirls. We won't go into that right now, but we'll have Jeff back and we'll talk about white pockets again and talk about the sunrise shot that he already shared with me, the one that made me jealous and made me excited to get out here. But I don't know how many times you guys have seen pictures of white pockets, but when I I saw three. I saw Joshua Snows. I, sh- I saw um, Nathan St. Andres. I saw Jeff's. And then I saw a few of those pictures. I stopped looking. I knew I was going to be out there. I didn't want to see more compositions and get any ideas. I just wanted to f- figure it out on my own to see what it was like when I got there. I was so surprised. From those pictures, I got the impression that White Pockets was, here's a parking lot, and the exact same size as the parking lot of, like, dirt, a dirt parking lot, that there would be the White Pockets. And there's just a couple hills out there, a couple hills that are very uniquely shaped, but not very big. No, this place is much, much bigger than that, and it has a lot of situational compositions right there that you can play around with. Really, really cool place. Just check out the show notes and see some of my other pictures that I took on the iPhone that I got some practice shots in beforehand. Really cool stuff. Loved it. Thanks, Jeff, for getting me out there safely because ah, it's so beautiful. I'm, Elise Bender has mentioned that she wants to go out there, and you kind of winky-eyed hinted at maybe you could get her out there. And then I just invited myself to join you guys because that would be so great to get out there again. You, you know what? It's going to be really fun. <laughs> what? Is we're going to go out there. And Brendan's going to go out there for the first time, and we're going to get to watch his reaction. Yeah. Like I got to watch yours. I have to record so, him. <laughs> yeah. It, it's going to be really a lot of fun to watch him, because now you'll you'll be able to see him the way you were. <laughs> Watching a so, seven-year-old kid open up his presents, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's going to have that yeah. eyes of glow. Oh, man, love that place. Again, guys, emphasize, do not go to Photog Adventure. Don't go to White Pockets because Photog Adventure says so. You do your research. Get the right vehicle, 33-inch tires. Be very, very smart. Be very, very prepared for what happens when you do get stuck. Make sure you go out the group. Make sure someone knows you go out there. Be very, very smart if you do go out there and be conscientious of the other people who are going and don't tear the place up 
please. It is a fantastic location. I can't talk any more about it because I don't want you guys to go. I want no one else to know about it. I want no one else to hear that White Pockets is awesome, but it is freaking awesome. So let's go ahead and take our last break of the podcast and we'll come right back. What were you going to say there, Jeff? Nothing. I'm just laughing. <laughs> I thought you were going to tease me or something. So we'll take our last break of the podcast. We'll come right back and we'll do a tip of the week, gear time, and then say goodbye to Jeff for only a little Hey guys, again, if you're thinking about a Milky Way photography adventure and you want to go to Oregon or you live closer to Oregon and it just makes sense to go out here, come out with us to Bandon and Crater Lake. The itinerary is that we will typically start out with Bandon for two nights. And if we the first night we get an awesome shot in Bandon, we're going to take off and do something like Shore Acres or even maybe go a little further south and try something else out in the Oregon on the Oregon coast. Once we're done with the beach side, we're going to go inland to Crater Lake and be out there at the National Park for two nights. It is glorious because of the elevation change the light in the sky becomes fantastic above light pollution closer to clarity on seeing the lower you know lower contrast object in the sky it just looks beautiful so come check it out photogadventures.com forward slash adventures and this one for particular is 1190 to join us hope you guys will consider it this one or the next one that we have coming up Welcome back to the final segment of the podcast. This is the Photog Adventures podcast. Thanks for listening to us, guys. We can't say it enough. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this podcast and you really think that others should be listening to, go to your iTunes, go to your Stitcher, go to whatever app you're using to listen to this podcast and please hook us up with a review. For tip of the week, I'm going to do a correction and not necessarily a correction as much as just an, a clarification. I said something on the last podcast about a using a Metabone Speed Boost adapter on a Sony camera and talked about how it can give you an extra stop. Well, that is a benefit that can happen, but there should be clarity given that Kurt Kais, I want to give him credit for, helped me realize the Metabone Speed Boost is actually something that only works on an APS-C camera. And so if you have a crop sensor Sony and you attach it to it, you will get a speed boost from it and you will gain a stop. But that actual adapter that has glass in it for the Metabone Speed Boost adapter, that one only fits on an APS-C body and we were using it on a full frame A7R III. And so one of the reasons we had such issues with focus or softness and kind of weirdness with that Canon 16 to 35 lens, Metabone Speed Boost adapted, put on the Sony A7R III with Nicole's camera is because that was not intended to work on a full frame. And the changes that happen because of it with the glass and everything and how it hooks up, those are part of the reasons why we had that. And so anyone who heard that and thought Metabone Speed Boost adapter might be bad for sharpness. Let's not get that impression. Let me correct that so no one thinks that. It's going to be true if it works on an APS-C camera. You use that, you're going to have a fantastic experience. But when you put that on something like the A7R 3 watch out. There will be a change. And when you put the Canon lens on its native Canon body, there was better sharpness and better focus. So I wanted to clarify that and fix that from the last podcast. Thank you, Kirk, for pointing that out. I had no idea. I always ever heard about the Metabone Speed Boost having a benefit of that, but never realized that that thing only was ever meant to be used on an APS-C Sony camera. And so good to know. I keep saying Sony camera. I haven't checked it. The product line of Metabones probably works on other 
brands of camera bodies, but I just keep thinking about it in my head as my way of connecting Canon lenses to a Sony. So I always say it that way. So thanks. That's the tip of the week. Just a correction and then gear time. I'll talk about my gear that I used out here at White Pockets. And then, Jeff, we have a little gear time from you as well, right? Yeah, I got a, I got a suggestion for everybody. Oh, sweet. Okay, awesome. I've been talking a lot, so I'm going to go through mine real quick, then we'll give it up to Jeff. Gear time about the Tamron 15-30 to lens. Man, I love that lens for Astro, and I've loved it for landscape. I've used it a lot for landscape. In fact, I used it happily in this landscape. The next morning at sunrise, when I didn't have great light, I also tried some shots that were before sunrise because I had really cool colors in the rock and really cool designs. And I captured some shots without a lot of light, a lot of clarity on the rock. And so what happened is we found, as we looked at my pictures, that Tamron brought in a lot of extra fringing. Now, I'm blaming the Tamron because in this low level of light situation and in my settings, it just didn't have very good clarity between the horizon of the sky and the edge of the rock. I had fringing on all of my edges. And so where the sky met the rock horizon, I had fringing all over. And then more light, that thing's great and sharp, and it's fantastic. I still 100% recommend the lens, and I recommend it mostly for Astro, and it's fantastic to use for all these purposes. But Jeff was pointing out, I put on a 16 to 35 on that camera or something a little bit sharper. I'm going to have less fringing. And so for my gear time, I talk about thinking about your lens in low level lighting, or I keep saying low level lighting because the low level lighting for astrophotography in low light situations, check your fringing, make sure that you try and adjust for it, use a different lens for it, open up your aperture more for it or just wait for the light to hit it. Because in that situation, I had a cool composition that I thought I could call portfolio, maybe even portfolio, but maybe at least shared on Facebook. But because of that fringing, it's so soft on the edge. I don't know, Jeff. I don't think I want to share that photo. And so it's sort of a scouting shot, and I can't wait to go back and get a really good version of that shot. You know, the uh, the fringing is a problem, but uh, you know maybe it's a good thing to show people exactly what you're talking about, though. I think it might be a good image to share mm, so that yeah. they can see what you're talking about. And um, so they, they can evaluate that in their own photography i think that would be really a, a excellent learning experience for everybody okay yeah i won't hide it then let's definitely share it i might even do a video on youtube for it then just to show it and show what happens as you're looking on the lcd screen i didn't see it even when i zoomed in at my focus i couldn't tell it was that bad until i put it on the laptop and saw it larger and realized oh it's it's kind of ugly you know why you weren't seeing it is because you're looking at the jpeg that cameras spits out that's a good so the camera is going to automatically take that out do you think it's just like if you shoot a high iso um shot and you let it be a jpeg have you ever done that when you're out doing astro take a uh, 10,000 iso shot and then have it record raw and jpeg and then look at the jpeg after you get done the jpegs are always just fabulous and there's almost no noise in them because the camera does such a better job than what we can do with all the software so in that situation if you think you might be getting fringing keep the jpeg version because i always shoot jpeg and raw so i have a jpeg version yeah you should have a jpeg and it shouldn't be as bad Ooh, i gotta check that out if, if the canon software is doing its job it should it should help that Ooh, okay, guys, so, there's a lesson there to be had. I got to check that out and maybe do a video on it if I find out and learn more about it. That's a good tip, Jeff. I had no yeah. idea. 
Yeah, because I know that the, with noise reduction, the camera does an amazing job. I've done some crazy stuff with my camera, and I know it wasn't going to work in RAW, so I shot it in a JPEG, and I actually ended up getting a pretty usable picture, especially like when I was shooting the owls. Yeah. Um, when the light gets really bad, I, I can use the JPEGs. And it's not something I'm going to necessarily print, but I could. Some of them I could. And as a JPEG, it's just as long as the resolution's fine. You don't mind printing it. It's just that the JPEG has already made some changes that you can't do in your post-processing. And so just limit some of your post-processing. But if it looks awesome, it's not a bad image. No. I mean, yeah, if it. If it, if I nail the exposure, I don't worry about it. So yeah, and honestly, a JPEG in my landscape photography doesn't bother me nearly as much as if I did it in my astrophotography. Milky Way photography, not having the raw to play with, would be sad. I would not like that white balance. I I want to fix that white balance and do some other things and having all the possibilities I can with the image. But that's a very good tip. I'm gonna try and go and look at that JPEG and see how it is. Yeah, I'd I'd check it out and see what happened and. That would be really interesting to see how well the software dealt with it in the camera. Oh, yeah. Maybe that's exactly why when I zoomed in, I didn't notice it, but on the computer, I did. Sweet. So what was your tip yep. for gear time, man? Okay. So my tip's going to be uh, the, the SunPi attraction mats. How do you spell SunPi? Uh, if I could read it. If I had my glasses, I could read it better. It's kind of small here. S-U-N-P-I-E. It really is just SunPi. But we'll we'll put a link in the show notes about these. But they're Amazon's got them. They're sixty nine dollars, um, and I would highly recommend if you're taking your SUV or your personal vehicle out, going out to locations where you know you're going to be driving on dirt roads. I'd get a set of these. They work both in snow, sand, and mud. So if you ever get yourself stuck in some mud or you get stuck, in, you run into some snow and, and are having problems, you can just pull these things out, you throw them underneath your tires, and you can get yourself unstuck. So it's a great, great little thing to have. They don't take up a lot of space. They stack inside of each other. Um, and I carry them anytime I go out on a um, photography trip. I always have them with me. And they've saved me a few times. I've gotten in the, stuck in the snow a couple times. And they're awesome to have and highly recommend them. And like I said, they're not, they're not that expensive. And if you bang them up or smash them, they're cheap to replace. Man, that is something that you could actually get out of white pockets with. Do you think you can put them down there and find your way out in some situations? Well, yeah, you'd only be able to move about four or five feet each time, about four feet each time. But sometimes that's all you need is just to get through one spot. And then you just drive, once you get onto the mat, you just kind of punch it and take off. And then once you get to a hard spot, you walk back and pick up the mats. Oh, right on. Okay. Well, that is good advice. Like you said, we'll have them in the show notes. Jeff, before we go out of this podcast, anything else, any tips you want to give them for white pockets? I didn't want to cut you off before you had any other ideas that maybe came out. I know that White Pockets is a fantastic place, and I am just a beginner at it. I had one trip there, and if the high winds haven't shown up and we didn't have to leave early, wow, we could have had a whole nother night there. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Um, if you're going to go out there for Milky Way, um, be careful. Bring, don't, bring really good lights when you're walking around. The ground is very uneven, mm, and yeah. it, it would be very easy to roll an ankle. 
And I will tell you, because this last weekend we had an emergency out there, it was two and a half hours before a helicopter could get there to carry the patient away. So not a place you want to get hurt. So if you're walking around out there at night, use lots of light so you don't have an accident because it's a long ways to help. Jeff even made the joke that if he goes down just to leave him, because he didn't figure I could drag him out of there and drive, let alone even drive your truck out of there successfully. (laughs) They would have found our... our, uh, our skeletons in a, in a year or so. <laughs> well, thanks, Jeff, for joining me on the podcast. And I want to say a big thank you to another tier of our patrons. I want to thank you, Helper Pontes, Kevin Wright, Ariana Brian Phillips, Rob Bryan, Jade Gonzalez, Matt, Simon Matin, or Matan. I think Simon, we say Simon Matan because I think it's French more. But Dennis Mahaffey, Martin Kent, Kemmerling, John Link, Andrew Block, Ryan Much, Joe Ch- Much, not Mulch yet, Much, Joe Choi, Ashley Griffin and Frank Woodward. Hey, thank you guys for being patrons of us. Brendan and I have a lot of appreciation for you guys fueling the podcast and really appreciate everything that you're doing. And we hope that we can keep giving back more. And as we have help from Rob Ryan, he's going to help me a little bit on the patron side. We're going to do more for you guys and get this stuff cool. And just a hint, um, one of the things that we're going to have coming up, Jeff, is this podcast is really fun to do all in one shot when it's live. It's really fun live, but it's also nice to do it as a live video feed and we have the space right now that we can actually do a live podcast and record it and we're thinking if we do two video podcasts a month we'll put those only available for those who are patrons so if you've been on the fence about being a patron hopefully you'll want to join us and become a milkway photographer lots of cool things out there I have a guy, an artist right now, finishing up the 35 stickers that are going to be for milkwayphotography.com so a lot of cool stuff (sighs) I would say around the corner, but it's frustrating it's not seven months ago. But I'm excited about it. A lot of cool things. Thank you guys so much. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for joining us. And we'll see you guys in another week on a Photog Adventure podcast. Have a good night. See ya.